This is I Choose Life, news and views sponsored by Indiana Right to Life and Right to Life of Northeast Indiana, committed to defending innocent human life for all people of all ages. I Choose Life, news and views is produced by Bot Radio Network in Fort Wayne, Indiana. This is Kathy Humbarger. Our guest today is Attorney General Curtis Hill, the 43rd Attorney General in the state of Indiana. General Hill, thank you so much for being with us and for all you've done for the cause for life during the last four years. Well, thank you, Kathy. And of course, I want to thank you for your friendship and for your advocacy on behalf of women and children, uh, not just in the Northeast Indiana area, but throughout the state. It's been my pleasure to work with you in the cause of protecting life, and I look forward to continued success. Absolutely. One of the things that I do want to make certain that everybody knows is that you and your staff have raised the bar in investigating complaints that have been filed against abortionists, and we are so thankful for that. As has been our practice for several years, General Hill, we invite you over the past few years in the sitting attorneys general previously to review what happened in the previous year at the beginning of the next year. So here we are, and we're going to take a quick run through what's going on in the courts. And there have been some other arenas in which you fought the fight that we want to make certain that we bring everybody up to speed on. So let's talk for just a minute. Let's set the stage for a huge decision that came from the Supreme Court this year. Those of us who follow these things referred to it as the June medical decision. And as I recall, the decision was handed down in June. So tell us a little bit about the decision and how that may influence the cases that come before the Supreme Court in the future. Well, the June medical decision was a big, long anticipated case because the Supreme Court has a tendency of, of pulling cases together or holding off until they can get a particular case that sort of hits a lot of areas. And June Medical was that case in 2020. The basic case centered around Louisiana action on admitting privileges, requiring abortionists to have admitting privileges in hospitals. And that was such a critical situation because uh, many states, including Indiana, were interested in the outcome of that because of uh, the desire to require that physicians that perform abortions have admitting privileges, primarily to address the dangers of when an abortion goes wrong uh, making sure that you have an access to a hospital for emergency procedures, et cetera. So the admitting privileges was key. And there was also a side issue uh, that we were all interested in was standing. Who had standing to bring an action against the state? Because what was happening all over the country, and including Indiana, is that it wasn't the recipients of the abortions who were bringing these actions against the state. It was abortion providers. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court held against uh, the state of Louisiana in June medical was a disappointing result in not requiring the physicians to have admitting privileges. However, Justice Roberts, in his opinion, and it gets a little technical, I won't go into the technical detail, but there was some changes that were directed in the balancing test of analyzing these cases, and we found there to be some room for hope in uh, some of the ways that the Supreme Court will analyze uh, some of the issues going forward. So we'll be watching those things moving into 2021 and beyond. Well, we uh, certainly had several pro-life cases in 2020. And, and just for our listeners to understand, it's the responsibility of the Attorney General of the state to defend laws that are passed by the legislature and signed by the governor. 
typically what happens is our pro-abortion folks challenge these laws, sometimes before the ink is dry on the governor's signature. And those cases sometimes take years to resolve. So let's turn first to the cases that were resolved. The one that was so important to me personally was the respectful disposal of aborted babies' bodies. This is so critical. I know people think, well, the baby's already dead. It doesn't matter, but it matters a lot. So we thought we had a final win in 2019. So what did the Supreme Court, I mean, they didn't actually hear the cases, as I recall. How did they uphold the law? And we thought we had a win, but as it turns out, it's not the final win. Well, it actually is a final win in the sense that the Indiana legislature crafted legislation that said that uh, abortion clinics and providers will provide a burial or cremation. And this is an issue that goes to the humanity of the fetal remains um, because the pro-abortion advocates, their basis is to convince people that we're not talking about human beings here. We're talking about medical, medical waste, waste mm-hmm. something that we can just get rid of. And, and so the Supreme Court making a determination that Indiana and other states have the right to determine that fetal remains will be buried in a humane and dignified way is an important case because it establishes by law, by Supreme Court edict, that these things, if you want to refer to them as things, you and I would say babies, are human. And I say it's a final decision because the court has spoken. Now, what happens is in many of these cases, uh, you have those who would disagree looking for opportunities to keep taking another bite at the apple. And so a lawsuit has been filed to raise the issue once again. And uh, what's interesting about the current lawsuit that was filed this last month is that they're suggesting that it's okay to simply disregard the law while they sort through their own lawsuit. In other Mm -hmm. words, right now, it's required to bury these fetal remains. They've taken the position that they can hold these remains indefinitely, keep them preserved indefinitely until a new decision is made. Well, that's a complete disregard for the law. What they should be doing is they should be filing their lawsuit, but burying the remains that they have and going forward. Well, in any event, they've chosen to do what they're doing. I liken the plaintiffs in this case attempt to indefinitely preserve the remains to a very famous indefinite preservation of remains case that you and I both know, and that's the Clopper situation. Absolutely. He, he indefinitely preserved the remains of 2,411 aborted fetuses. Right. So this idea continues to suggest that we can just disregard this. I mean, imagine how people would react if you had full-grown human beings who had died and someone decided to just simply indefinitely preserve them for some period of time. I I think people would be going crazy over that. So that lawsuit, I mean, we expect those things to come, but the bottom line is the Supreme Court did rule. We did get a big win. And I would suspect that we will come out on top moving forward. There's nothing new by this lawsuit that suggests uh, any reason that the court would change its mind. Tell me if this is an oversimplification. I read through this lawsuit. I'm not I'm not a lawyer. I don't have any legal expertise other than dealing with the life issue in the arena of court cases and that kind of thing. But it seems to me that the bottom line is that there are basically two issues that are being raised by the lawsuit. And this is a different abortion provider. This is an independent in Indianapolis that has filed a lawsuit against the legislation that was passed in the 2020 session directing the Indiana State Department of Health 
on how to enforce this. So to be clear, there was additional legislation passed and this lawsuit challenges that legislation. But it seems to me that there are two basic things. One, if we require the bodies of aborted boys and girls to be treated humanely and as human beings, that raises the issue that they are in fact human beings. And as I read through the lawsuit, it seems to me that the case they're making is that some women who choose to have an abortion don't believe that a baby is human before it's born. So therefore, we are pushing our religious beliefs on them and making them feel guilty because if they have to decide how the body of their baby, their aborted baby is disposed of, they have to come to grips with the fact that their baby is human. And the second thing that I see is that they're contesting the fact that this legislation passed several sessions ago that babies' bodies can no longer be defined as medical waste. Am I oversimplifying? I don't think so. I think it does come down to humanity. It does come down to uh, what we're characterizing these fetal remains as being. And I'll give you an example. For anybody who thinks that uh, these remains are just medical waste, they should have experienced what my staff experienced in going through the remains that were located in the Clawford garage and uh, vehicle, because the remains that they saw were not gobs of glue. They were, they were very distinctly heads, arms, legs, fingers, and toes. They, they very clearly were the bodies of children who had yet to be born. Right. So to deny the humanity is sort of a facade. And of course, Part of the whole process that the General Assembly has taken is to make sure that, that women are properly informed right. of what an abortion is about, right. what you're about to do. Now, in the state of Indiana, as well as the rest of the country, abortions are still legal. And the General Assembly recognizes that and places value in that as being the law, but still has the ability to address regulations. And part of those regulations is making sure that women and those who are seeking abortion services are fully informed of what they're doing and its impact. Right. And the impact is that it is taking the life of an unborn child. Right. You can sugarcoat that and cover it up. And if you can convince somebody that it's something else and maybe they feel better about themselves. I mean, from my perspective, Kathy, I have no interest in someone having a heavy heart or an agonizing life for the decision that they make. We have every interest in making sure that people have a full understanding of what it's about and then according to this current state of the law, they get to make that choice. Right. And when they make that decision, which, by the way, they choose yes. how the baby is going to be, if it's going to be buried or cremated or what, before the baby is aborted. So they have the opportunity to think about the fact that this baby does have a body. So if that saves them from a lifetime of regret, all to the good. We have to live in a world of truths. And the absolute truth is that this is a product of a human relationship, that it is human, that it is alive. And pretending that it's not or saying that it's not doesn't change what it is. It just changes someone's ability to sort of not let it concern them. And what we're trying to do is enforce the statutes that are there to regulate the process to make sure that people have the proper information before they make that decision, not to hurt them or harm them or cause them grief because of the decision they've made. Right. I have no interest in that. If someone understands it's a human being and chooses under the law to terminate their pregnancy, that's their current right under the state of the law. Right. And from that perspective, we have to honor that. 
but it's incumbent upon us to make sure that they have the full and complete information of what they're doing. There were two other wins in 2020. One is annual inspections. Originally, the law said that the Indiana State Department of Health must inspect abortion facilities every two years, but may inspect every year. So the decision was made by the legislature to change the may to shall so that the Indiana State Department of Health shall inspect the abortion facilities every year. And we went to court over that. So that was a win. And the other one that I would like you to comment on briefly is the 18-hour ultrasound that was remanded back to the Seventh Circuit by the Supreme Court. And Planned Parenthood kind of changed their mind on what they were going to do with that. So any comments on those two cases before we move on? Sure. Well, with the annual inspections, it's a matter of going to court over one word change, whether Mm -hmm. it was may inspect every year or shall. So the General Assembly chose to require the Department of Health to step it up, inspect every year, and get information back. And I think that was a very appropriate standard. With regard to the 18-hour ultrasound, that's a very interesting situation. Planned Parenthood dropped their action. And in fact, that law now went into effect as of January 1st of 2021. The stated reason why they dropped the lawsuit was because they purchased an ultrasound. Therefore, their argument in terms of why it was uh, undue burden for women in their area because they had to go someplace else to get an ultrasound would no longer be valid. We suspect that there may have been more to it tied to some of the other decisions, perhaps some of the issues that I referred to before the June medical case. So I think there's probably something more to it. But the good news is that we're proceeding forward with being able to provide better information, timely information for those who are seeking uh, an abortion. We're talking with Attorney General Curtis Hill. We're reviewing the events and the court cases that happened in 2020 and looking forward to some things that are still pending. And I would point out, General Hill, that the appointments that President Trump made, they have been monumental. We used to never win in court, never. So with your increased attention and your fight to defend these common sense laws and the fact that the the court is changing. I don't know if that had that much to do with the cases that were won in 2020, but certainly going forward, I think that we just need to count our blessings in that arena. The individual sensibilities that bear in the minds and hearts of those who are on the bench does make a difference. Mm. If you notice, Kathy, we don't seem to win a whole lot in the Southern District of Indiana. Right. As soon as, as you mentioned earlier, as soon as the legislation is signed, an injunction, injunction is, right. is applied, and boom, it's in effect, and it's off an uphill battle. But the decisions by the president, the opportunities that he's had to fill positions and filling those positions with folks who have a solid conservative judicial philosophy should bode well in the interest in preserving life or recognizing humanity of life. That doesn't necessarily mean, and people shouldn't think that that means an automatic wholesale reversal of Roe v. Wade. Right. That's not the case. The case is that you'll have people on that bench who will take a a more prudent review of the law and recognizing the constitutional constraints of decision-making. And I think we already saw that in a small way when the lower court didn't issue an injunction and, as a matter of fact, let stand the made a shall on the inspections. So I think we're already beginning to see maybe a little bit of change there. Let's hope that we can. I mean, I've always said that the real future of pro-life advocacy is not in the courtroom or the right. state of the law, it's in the hearts and, and getting Absolutely. people who, who are facing the challenges, a single parent, a single mother, a pregnant woman, 
with limited opportunities, uh, limited means, you know, who are we to be saying what you should be doing in your life? Well, we want to be able to help that person, right. provide them with the right opportunities so that they can make a good decision to keep their baby and to thrive uh, in their community. So uh, that's really what our ultimate goal right. is. Well, there are some cases that are still on the table. One is parental notification. As I understand, the Supreme Court remanded that back to the Seventh Circuit for review. And then we have the whole women's health omnibus lawsuit, which our listeners may remember was filed by Whole Women's Health, the facility that opened in South Bend and was ultimately denied a license by the Indiana State Department of Health. But the court ruled that they should be allowed to open under a kind of a fictitious licensing arrangement. And then we have the dismemberment ban and the complications reporting. Well, we're still waiting for the parental notification. That's always been one that just haunts me that someone thinks it's okay for a minor child to get an abortion without the parent knowing. I think it should be a parental rights bill as opposed to uh, anything else. And so that case is pending. I'm hopeful of the outcome, but it's been held up for quite some time. And so whenever that happens, you start to speculate, well, what does that mean? And Mm -hmm. so I can't say what that means. We would hope that there would be common sense that would prevail and that would not allow a child to be able to just walk in and get an abortion without mom and dad knowing about it. That that gets away from who we are as a nation. The whole women's health, you mentioned the, the, the omnibus lawsuit, or basically they threw everything in the kitchen sink that the abortion regulations in the state of Indiana. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the number of points. It was something like 18. I don't remember the exact number, but whatever that number was, we won a little bit more than half of the points. And more importantly, the things that we won in that lawsuit were the things we needed to win. The most important aspects of that lawsuit we won, and the least important aspects either came to a draw or we didn't get the decision. So on balance, we did pretty well in that particular case. They went after everything, and we preserved everything we needed. Do you have Um, any idea how or if this might impact Whole Women's Health's ability to operate their abortion facility in South Bend? I know that specific case was lost in front of the Supreme Court, as I recall, but Will the outcome of this case impact their ability to function, or do we not know that yet? It's doubtful that it will. You would think that because the injunction is done, you you would think that somebody would say, well, your license, you know, you have to go back to square one. I don't see that as happening. I think what the court's interpretation is going to uh, likely be is that they were given a provisional license as if they had qualified for one uh, directly from the Department of Health. And my guess is that that will proceed until or unless there's some action in which their license becomes uh, in question. I don't anticipate there being any sudden change in that situation as a result of the lawsuit. So the dismemberment ban, any comment on that? My recollection, I think it's still, again, another one of those lawsuits that you would think would be a a no-brainer because there are alternatives to dismembering a fetus while it's alive, and yet some don't see it that way. Right. So that's an unfortunate reality. Again, that goes back to the determination of humanity in the fetal being, because we would not expect anyone who is thought to be human to be torn apart or ripped apart. Uh, We wouldn't do that to a live person outside the womb. Why would we do it to a live person inside the womb? I'm not even sure that it's legal to do it after the body's dead. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's mutilation and abuse of a corpse. It's amazing how uh, little regard is given to these dastardly actions just because they're done upon a harmless fetus. Right. It would be 
unwise to have a discussion about 2020 without bringing something up about the COVID pandemic. And of course, that's impacted everything, it seems. And abortion was not exempt. In the end of March, our governor signed an order that said abortions were non-essential. However, there was a provision given for the abortionist to decide if the abortion was, in fact, necessary, which made the ban useless. I think the, the purpose of the executive order at that time was to limit the use of PPE. There were lots of questions about how much was needed, how much was available, who should have first run. Mm -hmm. So you see an executive order that places restrictions on non-essential services, which was quite an infringement on all of us. But in the early days of the pandemic, it was very, very accepted that we were going to have to do some things because we just had so little known. But as you pointed out, in terms of defining abortion as a non-essential, the language went on to basically allow that decision to be made by the abortion providers. And you could tell that there wasn't much of a stir up because there was no lawsuit filed. And quite frankly, it didn't stop any abortions from occurring. Right. I just want to insert here, I have been spending the past couple of days evaluating the termination of pregnancy reports from 2002. We write for those every month. And so we get the actual documents that the baby was had a life in the first place and that the abortion occurred. And we keep track of the numbers by month. And to my dismay, I found that April and May, the two months immediately after the executive order was signed, March 30th, we had a spike in abortions. Those two months were the, the months that had the highest number of abortions of the whole year. Now, I only have information through October, but still, that just broke my heart. Had we not had that exception in the executive order, and I know well-meaning people may have made decisions with an unintended consequence that they weren't aware of, but we saw more babies die in those two months than any other months that we have records for so far. Had we not had that loophole and the abortion facilities were shut down while that whole thing worked out in court because it would have been challenged, we would have saved babies. You know, Kathy, if, I can't say what the numbers would be, but if those numbers are correct, it would suggest that there wasn't a great deal of impact on the executive order limitation of abortion procedures as a non-essential service. I doubt that you would find a heightened number of tooth extractions or other so-called non-essential services during that period right. of time that were clearly prohibited by virtue of the executive order. So that's an unfortunate circumstance, but that's kind of what happens when you look at legal language and how it's applied. And when looking at that executive order, it certainly allowed for abortion providers to make the decision of what's essential and what's not. And I think that it stands to reason that most abortion providers would suggest that virtually all abortion procedures are essential. Whatever the going rate is, it's hard to imagine that the abortionist would advise against somebody having a procedure that's going to make them money. I don't want to miss the opportunity to uh, hear from you what the outcome of the Klopfer investigation was. As we referenced earlier, abortionist Ulrich Klopfer did abortions in Indiana for a number of decades, and upon his death, immediately after his death, the bodies of some of the babies that he aborted were found stored in his garage and in his trunk. And you did a complete and thorough investigation and just released the results of your investigation. Well, our final report did not have a great deal more information than much of the preliminary information. We had a great deal of information going into the case even prior to the time that we 
interred the, uh, the children in the cemetery. Uh, the primary thing that we were looking at, was there any information that we had available to us that would indicate anyone else who would be responsible for having violated the law and uh, illegally removing these fetal remains from the state of Indiana to the state of Illinois? And the answer was that we did not have any evidence of anyone else acting in concert with Dr. Cloffer. Obviously, with Dr. Cloffer being deceased, there was no ability to address his issues directly with any type of civil action or criminal action, but we were concerned about whether or not we would find any information suggesting that anyone else played a part in this action, whether from a uh, public health violation, from a criminal violation, and we did not have that. So to the best of our belief, Dr. Klopfer acted alone in his disposal or, or preservation of remains. And that was the chief thing that came away from the process. Uh, most all of the other information was information that had been released in previous reports or previous releases. Mm -hmm. Okay, the final thing on my list, and it has been an absolutely incredible year, for the first time that I can remember in my advocacy for pro-life issues, and this goes back over 20 years, the Attorney General of Indiana sued an abortionist from out of state. You did that, and you did it successfully. Anyone who follows CD abortionists will recognize the name James Pendergraf. He is an abortionist that operates in Florida. And we brought attention to the attorney general's staff that he was advertising he was doing abortions here in Muncie, Indiana. And in fact, he was not. So tell us a little bit about how that all came about. And congratulations on winning the first ever pro-life lawsuit against an abortionist out of state that I'm aware of. It's kind of weird that someone would, would be advertising for services falsely for services that they weren't rendering. I believe that case was brought to our attention by, by you folks. Yes. So we looked into it, filed an action, and got the matter resolved. I can't exactly say that I understand necessarily what other than trying to drum up business. Mm, I think that's um, what it was. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you have an expectation in the medical field. We all have an expectation that those who have sacrificed so much to become medical providers, doctors and such, that they all have a pretty upstanding belief system. So when you see people that are out there getting the system to make a buck, particularly in such an area, it's a little troubling. Great. Well, you did everything you could, and we absolutely appreciate your pushing that and actually uh, winning in that mm -hmm. case. We're completely out of time, General Hill. I am so sorry. I could We could talk on for another half hour, at least, I'm sure. But I want to leave our listeners with this. You are the most pro-life attorney general this state has had ever. Thank you so much for what you've accomplished for unborn boys and girls and their mothers. My heart is full. I know that we will continue this fight together in a maybe different arena, but thank you so much. Well, thank you, Kathy. And the issue of life is so important to all of us, you know, the humanity and, and God's gift. And so I'm just pleased that we've had an opportunity to professionally address these issues, not in a way that attempts to uh, demean and cause disrespect to those who make these choices, but in a way that tries to enlighten them and provide them with information so that they can make a better choice, so we can move to a point where everyone has the same amount of respect for humanity and life. And the gift of God. And that's the ultimate win. God bless you, my friend. And I am certain we'll be talking again real soon. Thank you, Kathy. 
You've been listening to I Choose Life News and Views. If you have questions about this program or if you'd like to support the fight for life, please call 260-471-1849 or go to ichooselife.org because without the right to life, no other rights matter.